Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today is a special episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You for a couple of reasons. First of which, we are going in depth on something that we have mentioned a couple of times in the podcast before, but have never really, really covered more in depth, like I just said, in depth, uh, and, and that's sex work, uh, also known as prostitution. But we are going to refer to it today as sex work, which is a positive term coined in 1980 by sex work activist Carol Lee, and it implies consensual work on uh, on the part of the woman, man, transgender in- individual involved in it. And to talk to us today about her experience in sex work is Melissa Petro, who is a freelance writer right now, but she also acquired the not-so-wonderful nickname of the hooker teacher in a scandal that broke out a couple of years ago. Right. In September 2010, Petra spoke out against Craigslist shutting down its adult services section. And she she sort of came out as a former sex worker because she said that, uh, I think if you're going to state an opinion, you ought to be able to back it up with your credentials. As she was saying this to Marie Claire, she says that, that a lot of people have such strong opinions about sex work, and yet they have no experience or personal knowledge whatsoever. And when she came out with this uh, column in the Huffington Post, she was currently employed by the New York City school system as an art teacher. And the New York Post did some very uh, intensive digging and outed her as a former sex worker. We should clarify that she was not engaging in sex work while she was um, a teacher. And as a result of the, the media uproar, um, she was reassigned by the school system to desk duty. And then she ultimately resigned in January 2011. And since then, she's been doing um, a lot of work with sex work activism to, to get people's voices who are in the industry um, out there to understand people's experiences and really bring things out of the shadows and also delineate between consensual sex work and non-consensual sex trafficking. Um, so enough of us talking. Here is our interview with Melissa Petro. Um, and first up, she's going to kind of give us the backstory of how what, what life has been like post-resignation. I guess I... Technically or officially resigned in April of 2011. Uh, um, I knew many months before that that I had surrendered or been forced to surrender my career as an elementary school teacher. So since then, I've been working as a freelance writer. I write for uh, different places, salon. Uh, I'm a regular contributor at XO Jane. Uh, I did the column for Mitch, and I wrote for Daily Beast, Huffington Post, different places. Uh, so I'm working full-time at that, and I'm also, I teach creative writing to adults at a continuing education school here in New York. And this spring, I'll be working with Red Umbrella, which is an organization that provides direct services to survivors of the sex industry. And I'm like, very excited to say that I'll be working with them to create a uh, creative writing program for current and 
former sex workers who are interested in um, getting more tools to tell their stories uh, through different literary venues. Uh, so I guess all of that's been since uh, since I resigned, and then obviously before that, you know, when I come forward on the Huffington Post. Um, I, should, I guess I should say, you know, it was really it wasn't my intention to call attention to myself in the way that that article did, but ultimately the attention was called, and and I think that the message was really clear after that, and it was swift and loud and pretty resolute that if you have a history like mine and an opinion on sex work that differs from any of the common views, that you really need to keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so since losing my job, I really dedicated myself to promoting the opposite of that message. Uh, so through things like uh, the column at On Bitch Magazine or um, the Becoming Writers Project with Red Umbrella, I can really promote this message that everyone particularly people who've been historically rendered invisible, have the right to be seen and heard. Now, some of the first writing that Melissa did on sex work was for her thesis, actually, at Antioch College called Selling Sex, Women's Participation in the Sex Industry. And so we wanted to get her insight on this intersection between academia and um, sex work because at the time she, I believe she was stripping while she, um, when she started working on her thesis. So we asked her to, to catch us up and let us know how she first got involved in sex work and how that led to her thesis and how that writing that thesis informed her job, the whole, the whole cycle there. I was, I was a sex worker before I was a researcher. Uh, I was actually a stripper before I was a sex worker, you know, sex worker in quotes. Um, but I started stripping in Mexico. I was just doing abroad, living in Oaxaca, Mexico, and I uh, ran out of money, ran out of uh, credit. My credit card was one day denied at a grocery store. And uh, at that time, I made a decision to start stripping. I worked at a club called La Trampa de Trap. Tramp, and uh, I started then uh, what became on and off for well five years of strength and over a decade I was in some aspects involved in, in sex work. Uh, but I should say before all that, my, my best friend in high school, uh, Jeanetta, called me one semester before I even left for Mexico and she told me that she had started stripping. And at that time, I had um, I'd just taken my first women's studies course ever, so I was just being introduced to feminism. And I was very excited by that, but then my friend Jenny calling really confused me because everything I had been taught about feminism contradicted and sex work. Feminism and sex work contradicted entirely with what I knew about Jenny. Uh, you know, she wasn't a victim. She hadn't been forced. She wasn't stupid. Uh, she was very intelligent. And according to her, she was making this choice that she felt would improve her life. So, um... You know, I actually went to visit Jenny at that club, and, and I really got a sense of why she was intrigued by this work and, and why she felt it was uh, going to improve her her life. And uh, my thesis then, a year later, was making sense of my experience and myself. Um, I'm listening to other women talk about their experiences, women like myself and women like Jenny who um, were consensual sex workers um, who were in some ways able to reconcile themselves with stigma mm-hmm. imposed upon them by their work. Uh, so that was really my intention of doing that thesis, was more to make sense of myself and my own experience than to um, 
to contribute to the, the body of research that I didn't see myself fitting into. But hopefully now I can do that too. Now, according to the Sex Workers Project, there are millions of people involved in sex work worldwide, some consensual, some not. But we do tend to have this view of sex workers as individuals who are weak, need saving, kind of looking at them under one umbrella as being the same type of person. But really, there is a lot of gray area, and there's not this need to treat them so paternalistically. And Melissa Petro made um, a great point in a blog series that she wrote for Bitch Magazine talking about the language of empowerment when it comes to sex work because a lot of times sex work is framed as this uh, in feminist discourse mm-hmm. as something that can be empowering for women when it is consensual. But um, when you actually get to the, the, the one-on-one experiences of women and men and transgendered people in the industry, um, it's not it's not such an, an either or type of situation. Right. It's it's a labor issue. Mm-hmm. Well I really when I first began thinking of myself as a feminist and looking at feminist um, knowledge in respect to sex work, there was really two camps, right? Sex workers were either empowered inherently or oppressed inherently and and, and having my own experience and having ex- ex- listened to other women, I knew that sex workers weren't a monolithic group that was either inherently oppressed or inherently empowered. Um, women's stories were diverse and as individual as the individuals I had spoken to. They were good, they were bad, they were ambivalent. And um, I think that uh, my research really wanted to explore all the constellations of circumstances that have led individuals to choose. Uh, sex work. Uh, so I do think that for many people, sex work is a choice. Um, my research argues that it's the best choice given the option that people who choose sex work perceive as available to them. So that goes from the you know happy hooker model all the way down even now with studies. Um, there was just a study conducted by Jackson College here in New York City. The study's called Lost Boys, and it's really a gathering of evidence that this is true even for the most disenfranchised among um, individuals who sell tests or who trade tests for things they need. And that study specifically looked at um, underage boys. So um, even that group was reporting that they were making a decision to engage in this lifestyle because it was solving a problem. And for them, it was the solution to that problem. So I would really argue that it's problematic to take away that option without first or in tandem solving the problem that is that have drawn these individuals to make that choice. You know, sometimes it's poverty or economic need. Um, And I would say that whether a choice is empowered or not is really for an individual to decide. It's not for me or another researcher to decide. And one of the most compelling distinctions that Melissa made was between being pro-sex worker and pro-sex work industry. Because as she'll explain, you can be one and not the other. And I feel like that's a, it's a, it's an, it's a good way of understanding some of the tenets of sex work activism and why that exists. Uh, I, I'd like to think of myself as pro-sex worker. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily pro-sex industry, um, given the uh, environment within which that industry operates. But um, to be pro-sex worker, I think, really means meeting people where they're at and giving them resources to make choices that are right for them. So uh, I would say 
It means identifying sex workers' concerns with sex workers as a part of that conversation and then letting um, letting sex workers help themselves or current and former sex workers as a community intervene in their own lives in ways that matter. Um, it also, I think, really means believing people among that community who say they don't need help at all, which there's certainly a large contingency saying that's very lovely. And speaking of the cultural taboo of consensual sex work, just the very act of paying for sex still seems like such a huge cultural taboo, even though prostitution has existed for so long throughout history. Um, and yet in, in 2012, as quote unquote open as we might be or more open as we might be, um, uh, regarding sex in our culture, although some people might might argue that that's not entirely the case. Um, but I really wanted to ask Melissa why that taboo of exchanging money for sex still exists. Sex outside of any heteronormative situation, I think, is still tabooed. And, uh, in the column, I did an interview with um, Dylan Ryan and she did a great job of addressing, you know, what, what is this? Um, and she spoke as a queer woman who makes porn and uh, talked about how her sexuality is stigmatized um, for more than one reason and, and how she really tries to make sense of her sexuality in spite of that stigma. Uh, and I think people should run to the website and read exactly what she said. But to paraphrase her, um, I think she had said, you know, it really comes down to fearing what we don't know. And people are afraid of sex workers, I think, because they think they've never met one. You know, just like no one looks at porn, right? <laughs> well, the, the irony is I think that most people have possibly met a sex worker or they think they haven't met sex workers because sex workers really, current and former sex workers, stay closeted about their professions. And why do we stay closeted? Because, well, it's taboo. So it's really that, that terrible cycle of weakness is something we just don't talk about, even whether or not people are, are participating. Petro goes on to say that even in a perfect world, we would still have people who who want to pay for sex. So the sex trade would not entirely disappear, even in some utopia. Absolutely. I think in a perfect world, there would absolutely still be sex work. I just think in this perfect world, uh, it wouldn't be problematized. It wouldn't be problematized because, uh, well, I guess in a perfect world, you know, a world without social or economic injustices, all the dangers of selling sex, you know, all the, the, the dangers that we attribute as being inherent to the profession, I think those wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that would be the difference. Now, I have a feeling that um, there is probably a discomfort for people who are not familiar with sex work activism, with the, with the notion of um, consensual sex work, of kind of bringing sex work out of the shadows and opening it up a bit because there's this whole other side of the coin, which is sex trafficking and people being forced into prostitution, that kind of sexual slavery. Um, So I wanted to also find out from Melissa how sex work activism can negotiate between consensual and non-consensual, whether or not you can protest for or promote sex worker rights while also ensuring that um, you aren't promoting sex trafficking at the same time because it still seems like those kind of conversations or consensual sex work and sex trafficking are still very much tangled up in 
the cultural mindset. Yeah, and going back to the sex workers project, uh, they say that confusing sex workers with trafficked persons erases the voice of sex workers, worsens their working conditions, adds to their general stigmatization, and impedes discussions on ways to end human trafficking. So it's important to give people a voice in this arena. It's unfortunate today that it is still challenging, and I think that the reason why it's challenging is because there's this misconception prevalent that there really isn't a difference, that all sex work is uh, some form of sexual slavery, and I blame feminism for that in large part, and that, you know, it's really been adapted by popular culture, the idea that all sex work is sex slavery, all sex work is sex trafficking, all sex work is underage sex work, or underage um, sex trade or sex slavery. We don't really think of underage sex work. Uh, but the important point, I think we have to begin by acknowledging that there there are two different we're two different issues. One is sex trafficking, and that is different from consensual sex work. And you can absolutely improve the conditions for sex workers by choice um, while combating sex trafficking. I think finally we're, we're, we're ready to have that conversation as activists. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that someone should be led under false pretenses into a job that they don't want. Uh, so I think the question of sex trafficking is really a, a question of labor and labor protection and protecting individual human rights and, and workers' rights. Um, because it's sex, I think it gets um, laden with, yeah, it, it becomes a different conversation, but really uh, sex trafficking and, and trafficking is not just sex trafficking. Domestics are trafficked, individuals are trafficked um, for, for their labor uh, against their, uh, under false pretenses and against their will for, for different reasons. But when we start to talk about sex, you know, we think of it as differently. And, and really, I think that those, those individuals, those humans deserve the same protections that any other humans deserve, uh, sex aside. So a lot of my, Melissa's work that she has done and the the women that she has talked to has really focused on um, just women in sex work. And when we asked her about whether working conditions are different for queer, transgender, and male sex workers, she brought up a really good point that by virtue of her being a white female, she has been inherently in a position of of more privilege, being able to speak out and having her story resonate more possibly in the public eye because she does fit that stereotypical mold of what we might think of when we think of a sex worker. And um, so we want to play this part of the interview because privilege and sex work might not um, might not seem like two themes that would go together, but in Melissa's experience, she emphasizes over and over again that she actually has... Um, she has had a position of more privilege than a lot of sex workers out there. I realized that, you know, part of the interest in my story is because I'm a heterosexual, um, I'm a white woman, I have a certain look, uh, you know, there's like, uh, there's a lot of privilege that comes with having anyone with a platform has a certain amount of privilege, and I understand that my platform is available to me because I, I appear in this way. Um, and I, I also, I mean, that said, you know, I can only still, I still can only speak from my experience, and uh, I wouldn't ever purport to, I, I have never, I haven't done work with queer or male sex workers, I, I wouldn't try to speak for them, 
I, I really think I'm a huge fan of self-representation and believing that people should be uh, given voice and given visibility to speak for themselves. Uh, so to, to learn about the working conditions of these populations, I would say we have to go to those populations. Now that said, I can think just off the top of my head, there's a, a place called hookonline.org, which mm-hmm. is about, uh, it's an e-magazine that's all by, for, and about men in sex industry. So they're creating their own platform, and, and that's absolutely necessary. So people like me, who have a, a certain amount of privilege and a certain platform, you know, I, I do think that a responsibility of mine is to not just tell my story, but to create a platform like what I'm doing with Red Umbrella, or even better, what I did with uh, Bitch Magazine, where I included other other uh, voices that, you know, either I could relate to or not at all. According to the Sex Workers Project, uh, for many people, sex work is their best or even their only opportunity to earn enough money to support their families. Like all people, sex workers need empowerment through access to health care, job training, education, and into discrimination and opportunities to make a living wage in more than one way. They also face a social stigma that can prohibit their movement into other forms of labor. So not only is their past work experience prohibiting them from possibly getting a better job in a more acceptable, uh, socially acceptable line of work, but also they're used to getting a lot of money pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we wanted to find out whether or not retiring from sex work might be harder than we might think. Because certainly... Um, Prostitution, sex work is, is rarely considered a long-term career goal, but when women or men or transgendered people do make up their minds that they want to move on beyond it, stepping out can, can be challenging as Petro herself experienced. I mean, for me, I could say that after having worked in and out of the industry, um, I was really unwilling to do the same kind of working class and working poor jobs that I had done prior to discovering sex work. I just was not going to work for minimum wage. Uh, you know, there was, there was obviously society lent very little dignity to the work of sex work, but, uh, you know, as the women I interviewed said, she, you know, there's really no dignity in being poor either. And at least, you know, you can make the money you make and not care what people think. Uh, than to be poor and, and, and to be indignified by that. So I, I think that, uh, you know, for me also, there was a huge gap in my employment history and, uh, I just wasn't willing to work to do that, that labor anymore. Um, so I, for someone like me who had come from a working poor background, I didn't have a lot of, um, interest in returning to that. And I think that, you know, some women, it can become a, uh, I think, Sex workers, I'll say sex workers that I spoke with really thought of sex work as a means to an end and as a temporary occupation, but unless you're pursuing an education and unless you have some sense of how to handle money, which I didn't, you might not create the, the, the necessary um, ladders to transition to something else. Uh, and then, there, of course, there's always the fact that you can't talk about your work or disclose your past. And um, obviously, for me, that was something I was unwilling or maybe just unable to do. Um, I couldn't just live in fear thinking that maybe someone will discover this or um, just this idea that, you know, there's a part of me that I could never share. Um, I know, you know, maybe some people would say it was naive for me or just stupid to ever have thought I could become a teacher. Um, but, you know, I'm really grateful I had that naivete because I could be a teacher. I was a great teacher. Unfortunately, 
other people couldn't reconcile the fact that I had this past and that I could then have become a teacher. I think our society just was not ready for that. So speaking of Petro's personal experience with sex work, um, which she's no longer doing, she's focused on activism, on writing, um, as she explained earlier in the podcast. Um, but she leaves behind um, this this scandal that is immortalized, basically, in Google searches. And we really wanted to find out, too, whether or not her coming forward and becoming more of a public face of sex work activism, um, whether it was worth the negative side of the scandal. Because, Caroline, doesn't her, didn't she tell Marie Claire that she was essentially being stalked at one point by New York Post reporters? Yeah, they came to her school and the principal had to call the police thinking that there was some crazy ex-boyfriend following her around. And to me, hearing how she has dealt with everything since then um, really speaks to her strength of character. I think maybe two years later I can say yes, but God knows two years ago or a year ago I might not have been so um, cavalier. I mean, I'd say yes, I have no regrets. And I I wrote a piece for XO Jane about, um, I had recently written an article for Penthouse and just how I I no longer feel ambivalent about the... um, the identity that's imposed upon me, the stigmatized identity, not just a former sex worker, but now I'm the, like, quote-unquote hooker teacher. So, you know, at first, obviously, that's not a, a moniker I had embraced. Um, today, I wouldn't say I embrace it, but um, I understand it, and I don't, um, you know, I'm going to, I'll, I'll do what I can with it to, to live comfortably within that identity. I mean, just personally, it was, it was tragic for me. Like, I, I had to give up my apartment. I had to, um, I went unemployable. I still am to a certain extent. I'll never work in, in childhood education again. Uh, but, you know, I will work in, in other places where all of my skills and talents can be of use. And, um, you know, maybe that's what was meant for me. And so I, I guess I, I'm saying I have learned to embrace it. Um, it was a difficult transition, and I think I thought I had much more privilege than I did. I really expected institutions to step up and support me, um, because as an individual, I was just no match for what was being targeted at me. And, you know, I, I really did feel that effect. You know, that I did, I had no money. I had no way of making money. Unless, ironically, I wanted to return to selling vets, which I didn't. Uh, so, uh, standing up for what I believe in, it's, you know, at one point, and I, I think I mentioned this in the, the exogene piece, my therapist and my boyfriend sat together, um, and we were doing couples therapy at that time. They both looked at me and were strongly suggesting that I just change my name and move to another state where I could just start over. And for obvious reasons, I think if you know my story, I just couldn't do that. I couldn't hide this part of who I was. So um, today I'm really grateful that I didn't do that. I'm really glad I didn't change, didn't change his name and move somewhere else and pretend it didn't happen. You know, I really want to turn turn all of my life experiences into gifts that I can keep giving or that I can use to be useful to others, and including, you know, the whole quote-unquote hooker teacher and then we wanted to know if Melissa Petro had any parting words for our listeners, anything that she really wanted to drive home about her experiences. Um, I think that's where I'm at today, um, you know, which political points I, I, I promote most strongly. It's just this idea that 
um, people who have, have historically been rendered invisible, and I'm talking about sex workers, but also any other population, people who, who just don't, don't get to speak for themselves really ought to be. Um, you know, anyone who, who has been made invisible has the right to be seen and heard, and really the only way that any true social change really can only come about by listening without any sort of judgment or condescension to these communities. You know, people we purportedly seek to help, those people need to be involved in those conversations. And so when it does come to sex work, I think we're finally in a place um, that sex work uh, community, sex work activist community, is in a place where we're finally willing to listen to all experiences, good, bad, ambivalent, and just, just letting everybody come to the table and have a, a place in that conversation. And I, and I think that's how we'll truly uh, solve the problems and, and, and empower, empower people to be actors in their own lives. So thank you so much to Melissa Petro for talking to us. And if listeners out there would like to learn more about sex work activism, um, she recommends going to the Red Umbrella Project's website, which you can find through Google. And um, I also highly recommend going over to Bitch Magazine and checking out The H Word, which was the eight-week blog series that Melissa did, which includes not only her own writing and her own experience, but also a number of interviews with and essays by other women um, involved in sex work. So it's some pretty pretty fascinating conversations over there. But thank you so much to Melissa for giving us a little bit of her time and talking about something that we rarely talk about. And when I say we, I'm talking about you and me, Caroline, but I'm talking about all of us too. And maybe it's, maybe it's time for us to pay more attention to those millions of people out there who are working in the sex industry, but are having to also live in the shadows as well. Well, since we've had this very special interview talking to Melissa Petro today, we are going to skip the listener mail segment of the podcast. But if you do have anything that you want to share with us, any ideas or thoughts about what we've just talked about, shoot us an email at momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and like us. I'd really appreciate it. And you can check us out on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And please check out our blog during the week for more great information at HowStuffWorks.com Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you